You know, it's such a shame that it's so hard to find good, honest, legal help these days. How in a dream, cowboys. Welcome back to the HBO Boys podcast. Right now, we are recapping and reviewing the HBO film noir TV series, Perry Mason. They were talking about Chapter 4, written by Steve Hanna and Sarah Kelly Kaplan, and directed by Denise Gamza Ergevin. Namepronouncer.com, do not, do not dare let me down. <laughs> I was going to say, let's go, I was going to totally rat you out, like, behind the veil, James has been looking at how to pronounce that name for the last ten minutes. It did not go well at the end of it, so all of his effort is in vain. No, I think I got it. No. <laughs> no. So this director, I have not heard of her. She's actually Turkish. She is a celebrated independent film maker. She has a debut feature called Mustang, which got a lot of buzz at the Cannes Film Festival in 2015. Much like Watchmen, there's an obvious concerted effort to employ more female directors. Watchmen and Westworld. Westworld, actually. I think most of the episodes had female directors. So it is obvious that HBO is trying their best. And as we discussed last time, the first three episodes, aptly named Chapter 1, 2, and 3, respectively, of Perry Mason, the miniseries, was written and directed by the showrunners wrote it and Timothy Van Patten, I believe, directed it, right? So this is the first episode that was not that way. And I believe we said last time, I was like, you know, as long as it's similar, right? Does the aesthetic change enormously? Mm. Does the writing get worse? And in my mind, both of those things did not occur. No. Though I thought the writing in this episode was great. Yeah, exactly. But I will say, a huge thing happens in this episode. It's just odd that the showrunners are like, you know what? This is the one that we'll put to the side and be like, you do this. Denise Gamsa Ergevin also has a drama called Kings, starring Halle Berry and Daniel Craig, which is like, it takes place during the L.A. riots. Okay. I'm just looking up now. That sounds really good, actually. I might watch this movie. Okay. (laughs) Because I liked this episode. Oh, God. This one. This one hit hard. Before we jump into it, guys, we just want to remind you really quick that we have a Patreon, and for $1 a month, you get a bunch of bonus content, guaranteed two episodes a month, but then Ryan has been pumping out even more bonus content than that, and we just did a very long-form review of the version of Hamilton that's on Disney+, Plus, and we had a few new people on the show for that, and it was a lot of fun, so if you're interested in that... Hit us up on Patreon with the HBO boys with a B-O-I-Z. Few things. One, yes, the Hamilton episode is absolutely worth a dollar, I believe. It is almost an hour long. A lot of wine was involved. I didn't tell James that there was going to be drinking. To be fair, it was a weekday. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, you should let me know on. and I would have I would have started drinking uh, Listen. Uh, at eleven o'clock on a on a on a Thursday. Yeah, in the morning in Korea. Listen, I didn't know either, okay? It was a surprise to all of us. Also, by the way, you were doing so good remembering to say the Patreon thing at the beginning of the episodes, and Mm -hmm. I'm super proud of you. That's why it keeps me around, folks. Yeah, because you remember things sometimes. Chapter 4 starts with Sister Alice recovering at her fancy villa outside the city. She gets visited by some well-wishing parishioners from her church, they bring her a gift. The cute little girl's mm-hmm. like, do you like sweets, Sister Alice? Because I got some really sweet giant black snakes for you, which they dump in her lap. It's fucking snakes. What the fuck? Like, how did they get the snakes in the box, James? They let the little girl carry the snakes. The little girl yelled like she was goddamn Satan incarnate. What do those parents do to that devil baby to make her that way? There's so much wrong with that moment. Also, this church has to be making mad bank. That villa is... Swanky as shit. Yeah, this was a you know a good way to start the episode and really grab your attention. I'm, I'm really liking the characters of Sister Alice and Birdie, and and I was very shocked to see a little girl just dump what two or three extremely big snakes on your lap. I would be mortified by that. Oh, day is over. 
The week is over when snakes get dumped on you by a little Satan baby. Can I tell you a disgusting anecdote? Absolutely, you can. In Vietnam, mm. there's like just this really long street that is colloquially called Foreigner Street where people go to drink and party. And there's like Seems street racist. performers who will go and like, you know, there's like sometimes like fire dancing or something like that, right? And this mm. one guy was doing a street performance. He was snake charming this little green snake, right? Mm. Uh-huh. And he puts it up one nostril and it comes out the other. And no. it's a live snake. No, thank you. And I I nearly fainted when I saw that. <laughs> you fainted? The guy didn't faint. But one person... And, and the snake it. looked fine. The snake was into it. He's like, oh. uh-huh. Cool. Yeah, this happens every day. I'm up a nose, out the other side of the nose. Such is life. That was the disgusting story. Yeah. If you had vomited on yourself, that would have been, I think... <laughs> just say... Next time you tell that story to somebody, you totally vomit on yourself. Della goes to pick up E.B., who is more self-pitying than he is worried about Emily. Della wants to press charges against the cops who were torturing Emily in the last episode, but E.B. says that that nothing will come from that, even if they were to do it, and instead they should use it as leverage to get Emily's bail reduced. Della was with Emily until 6 a.m., and as you said, E.B. is like, listen, telling the cops the cops did something wrong is just not going to work. Let's actually use this as ammunition to do what we're setting out to do, which is get the bail reduced and get Emily out of jail. Della is super frustrated with how slow the justice is. And then we get the big block letters of Perry Mason that I like the title sequence so much. It's just so old school and neat. There were many scenes in this episode that made me sad. Mm. And and the next scene was the first one. <laughs> Peter and Perry are hanging out with Virgil, the mortician. Oh my god. And, oh, and he's <laughs> he's such a square, but they're acting, like, really cool to him. Uh, yeah. And at first you're not sure why. They take him to Perry's house where they're drinking, smoking, having a good time. Virgil is wondering, like, if they're gonna watch, or not watch, because there's no home video yet, if they're gonna look at some pornography at some point. Weird. Cool. He reveals that one of his fetishes, this is called a giantess fetish, that mm. he, he wants to be picked up and, and handled by a 50 foot tall woman. Yep. Just, you know, a little tiny man put inside her purse. We have a friend with this fetish, by the way. I'll tell we you do? After who it is. Yes. Oh my God. And his exact phrase all the time is, I want to climb her like an Amazon. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> His name's Mark. <laughs> Actually, he's been on the podcast before. I don't care. <laughs> they then bring Virgil to the basement where they are keeping the stolen corpse of George Gannon. Wow. This was very shocking. Virgil is mortified. But also but they- hurt. Yes. Hurt that he, he doesn't have real friends and they were just using him. P.S. By the way, this is Jefferson Mays, a huge part of this show. Yeah, giving a great performance, too. Yeah, he was, I think, a better performance than he did in Westworld, although, to be fair, it's just a better character. Yeah, better script, yeah. And Jefferson Mays, again, from our hometown, so proud of you, Jefferson, a person I do not know. Yeah, Jefferson, uh, if you're going to be at Clinton, Connecticut, Friday night bingo, please let us know. If you're going to be at Clinton, Connecticut, Friday night bingo, you're going to be there alone. There's a virus, sir. Right. <laughs> They implore Virgil to perform a second autopsy, saying the one that the cops obtained was fraudulent. As Ryan said, Virgil thought that they invited him out here to chill and be friends and begins to cry, and so they ease up on him. God, super sad. You know, actually, the thing I was thinking at this moment, other than, gosh, this is sad. Remember when we thought there would be, like, a case of the week back in Mm -hmm. episode one? Yeah. There is not. (laughs) No. Well, it could still happen, maybe. But I don't know. P- Perry seems pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, busy just stealing bodies and shit. Making Virgil cry. Back at Alice's house, Alice's doctor says that she cannot go back on stage and that she needs rest or her epilepsy will get even worse. The church elders want her to get back as soon as possible, in part to keep their flock engaged so they don't start going to other churches, but then also to walk back and do some damage control on the claim that she made that she's going to be resurrecting baby Charlie. 
Yeah, they think it's a bit much. Birdie gives a spirited defense of Alice, but when Baggerly threatens to leave the church and take his financial support with him, because he's very upset about the church standing behind Emily, he and the other elders back Birdie into a metaphorical corner, and she has no place to go but kind of to relent. They straight up tell her they're just going to stop giving any money if Sister Alice doesn't take the resurrecting baby Charlie thing back. Quote, this church can no longer be teetered on the whims of hysterical women, unquote. Hey, James, I was wondering where all the sexism was in this version of Perry Mason. I found it. X marks the sexism. We got there. Yeah, and we should say uh, this is why she got snakes dumped on her. People are not taking the whole I'm going to raise the dead like Jesus did thing very well. No, you... You can't say that you're Jesus. It's just like generally uncouth to be like, hey, I'm also Jesus. E.B. is being interviewed in his office. He gives a pretty eloquent quote about the case. And then very strangely, they also ask him for a restaurant recommendation. Oof. Obviously, that's going to be used against him. And Della's is like, what are you going to do? And what he should have done was be like, what restaurant I go to is not important. Only thing important is my client. But instead, he just, like, said the restaurant he liked. Yeah, he likes Sad French times. dip. French dip, pretty good. Oh, my God. Oh, can we stop just talking about Chapter 4, Perry Mason? Spend <laughs> the next 40 minutes on French dip. This Holy is the shit. French dip podcast now. French <laughs> yeah. dip uh, with potato chips? Get out of here. Holy shit. French dip, boys. E.B. and Barnes make their case to the judge. E.B. claims that Emily is being threatened by the police, and that also the case against her, besides, is very weak. Barnes claims that actually the case is getting stronger every day, and that Matthew has flipped on Emily, and E.B., as always, totally befuddled and at a loss for words. Right, he is completely blindsided, although it was only that morning that Matthew turned on his, who he believes to be cheating, wife, and also, by the way, his daddy that never loved him has offered him a place to the right of him making Godtown USA. And as Maynard leaves, E.B. begs Fred, the judge whom he knew in a metaphorical past life, as he looks up at Supreme Court Justice Oliver Holmes, a painting of him on the wall, whom I assume is like a John Aaron to Robert and Eddard figure to Fred and E.B. Just perhaps they clerked for him, but a father figure whom is not their father. And by the way, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. is an actual Supreme Court justice. It's just like a based on an actual dude nominated by Teddy Roosevelt. One of his famous quotes is, Taxes are the price we pay for a civilized society. Yeah, Oliver Wendell Holmes was also like a lawyer in the 19th century, and uh, his diary is used a lot in the Ken Burns Civil War documentary, and that's how I know his name. Yeah, well, you gotta be a lawyer before you're a Supreme Court justice, so that does make sense. But that is interesting that he's a, he's a, he's a burn file. I don't know what those are called. What are Bur Ken Burns fans called? Burnouts. <laughs> nice. E.B. then goes to the bank to try to take out a loan for Emily's bail, which is still at 25. The judge said that he would put her in protective custody so the cops can't bother her, but he's not going to reduce the bail. So E.B. goes to the bank to try to take out a loan against his assets. The longtime banker that he thought he'd be dealing with has now retired. He's like, where is he? Can you get him in here? It's like, no, he's in the Poconos. He's retired. Like, what do you want? <laughs> yeah. He does not work here. You're old. That just reminds me of the scene in The Irishman when uh, <laughs> he's like in the retirement community. And they're like, well, you're going to have to talk to my lawyer. And they're like, your lawyer's dead. And he's like, what? Who killed him? Nobody. He was 99. <laughs> <laughs> Time killed him. They will not give him a loan for 25K. 25K, we should say, is about like a quarter of a million dollars in the 1930s. Basically, he has too much outstanding debt for them to even consider giving him such a loan. He has a very nice house that we see him walking around by himself in many scenes, but he has three mortgages out on said house, and he hasn't had a case in a long time. So, you know, 
EB is not doing as well as we thought he was. When you met him in episode one, he seemed like a guy who had it together. He seemed like a practicing lawyer who was probably rich, and it is not that way. And I will also say, I've watched this whole episode, right? I've seen the end of this episode, and this scene did not hit that hard. It hit kind of hard when I was watching it, but it now, in retrospect, hits much harder and is like an actual trope that I didn't see coming. Sad. Sad. At Della's boarding home, a traveling salesman makes a pitch to one of the other boarders about buying a grave plot, and then they invite him. They're like, yeah, good sales pitch. Why don't you have dinner with us? And so Della, two of her fellow boarders, and the salesman sit down for dinner, which the boarder, I don't know, kind of complains about, which upsets the old lady who might be the uh, the lady of the house. The lady's name is June. She's running the place. At the table is Oliver Fogg, the traveling salesman, and Miss Prystock, the one being sold to. They were talking about Chubby Carmichael at some point, and the house is called the Biltmore. Now, this scene was super confusing to me. I did not understand why all these people were in this place. I did not understand that they were living together. What Della's whole deal was. Uh, I, I learned more about this scene, like what happened in it, from what you just said than I did while watching it. It was very confusing. In the next scene, two obnoxious businessmen are going out golfing when their caddy stumbles upon George Gannon's naked corpse in a sand trap. Hilarious. Okay, Here's a question for you, and it's, I think, the most important question we have both asked and hopefully answered in this entire podcast. Do dead dongs count? Oof. Well. Because if it, if it counts, I am, uh, I'm winning with if, the two if dongs. It, if, if it is, if George, the actor that plays George Gannon did some corpse acting and it's his actual dong, sure. But if this is all facsimile dong, and that this is a fake special effects body. A prosthetic dong. Effects, yeah. So uh, we're going to have to maybe get somebody from the Perry Mason production side to weigh in on this. Yep. Well, I think you're right. For context, by the way, if you don't know, hashtag dongwatch2020 is in full effect. Because Chubby Carmichael hung dong oh, yeah. in, in the center of the screen, very clearly his own dong here. I don't want George Gannon to sneak by with a fake prosthetic dong. That's not fair to Chubby. I agree, no. I understand, I, but I also think you're biased because your bet at the beginning of this was that there would only be one dong, and if this dong is real, then you lose that incredibly important bet that I'm sure you think about on a daily basis. So, I, as I agree, there needs to be some fact-checking on this hashtag dongwatch2020 if there is, in fact, two, because then I, the person who called two, am winning. I just assume eventually there will be three, and based on prices Right rules, which we know are what you have to apply to all dong watches. It is known that I will lose, but you're right. We'll have to do some digging here and get back to you, the audience. All you HBO boys out here listening to this, please tweet us and let us know, do dead dongs count? Hashtag do dead dongs count. That's the best hashtag I think we've ever come up with. Also, I need to make very clear, an HBO boy is not a gendered thing. No. No. It, it, you can be whatever on the spectrum of genders. I mean, Ryan's girlfriend Sam has been on the show. That makes her an HBO boy. That's true. Sam is Sam HBO boys. She knows it. I know it. Everyone does it. So anyway, they stumble upon the corpse, and it happens to be within the jurisdiction of Virgil's mortuary. And so George Gannon's corpse is brought to him for an autopsy, just like Peter and Perry wanted. He exclaims, those fuckers. After he drinks, he has a bit of a drinking issue that he is picking up lately. I will also say, by the way, Jefferson Mays, the guy who plays Virgil, is the narrator for the Expanse books. He he does the narration for them, which, by the way, I'm about to start listening to because I'm watching the show and it's very good. Peter and Perry explain their theory about George not being the real killer, and there being a fourth man to E.B. E.B. at first is shocked and confused, but quickly comes around, realizing that this is very good news for Emily. 
but it also I think eventually will hinge on Paul Drake testifying to the fourth man theory, which I assume has to happen, right? Paul Drake has proven that his morality supersedes his family's safety after Ennis straight up, if you want to say passively, but I'll say aggressively, threatened Paul Drake, his wife, and their unborn child. So the only question is, assuming that he will testify to the fourth man theory, is do his wife and baby make it out of this show? And based on the 1950s single version of Paul Drake, it's not looking good. E.B. goes to meet with D.A. Barnes to try to cooperate with him, sharing what Perry has come up with. E.B. is very pleased with himself at first, until Barnes pulls out a file which contains evidence that E.B. borrowed large sums of money from his clients, which would be grounds for disbarment. Hubris has a name, and his name is E.B. Barnes gives him three options, either plead out, throw the case, or get disbarred. So, either she says she's guilty, or you do a bad job on purpose, or I'm gonna destroy your career. So, you know, all of those options. Not great. And a meeting in which E.B. came in hot, believing that he finally was turning a corner to positivity, turns out to be probably the worst meeting he's ever had in his entire life. And the only aspect of his life that currently gives him any value, him being a lawyer, is hung above him and is about to be taken away if he doesn't do things that he obviously can't do in good conscience. Back at her home, Bertie feeds Alice in bed while parishioners sing hymns in the garden. She tries to convince Alice that her revelation was just an epileptic hallucination, but Alice stands firm that it was divine inspiration. Right, her point is, listen, it's not my fault that I'm the voice of God, okay? I didn't choose this, and I guess that's a good point if you, you know, are truly the voice of God. And, well, it goes to show, and this is an important character detail, I think, that Sister Alice is not a charlatan. She is a true believer. She thinks that she is divinely inspired. And, I don't know, maybe the same cannot be said for Bertie, though. No. I think Bertie's in it for the money. And Sister Alice, uh, probably, as just like a normal human being, part of her is, enjoys the money, as do the elders of this church whom want to keep having their side hustle be profitable and have Sister Alice take back the whole resurrecting a baby thing. But this scene proves pretty clearly, no, Sister Alice is like, nah, dude. I mean, listen, God told me. What am I supposed I'm to do? bringing that baby back to life. Come on. Yeah. Let me do what go, I want. Right. I can't go guess what God told me, dude. D.A. Barnes calls a secret meeting with Holcomb and Ennis. He chews out the two detectives about this fourth man theory and their total lack of evidence as it pertains to the actual murder. Which is funny because he's yelling at the fourth man. He just doesn't know it. And that fourth man is Ennis. And by the way, I wish E.B. knew that this scene happened, right? Like, I wish E.B. knew that Maynard was shaken a little bit at least enough to have this conversation but to eb's knowledge manor is just completely confident so <sighs> perry calls his ex-wife and his son from a phone booth on the sidewalk he shares kind of a sweet conversation with his son teddy but it's cut short when coincidentally fatty carmichael happens upon him forces the phone booth door open and then beats perry mason's ass pretty good from the other side of the door oh yeah he lights Perry Mason up while he is on the phone with his son. I would not call it, I don't know what adjective you used. It, it, it wasn't great. His son said he didn't like the truck that Perry sent. He wants a ball glove now. And then in the middle of said conversation where Perry Mason is, you know, semi-destroyed by the one thing he gave his son for Christmas that didn't even get to him the first time being a good toy slash present, he gets the shit kicked out of him by Fatty Carmichael. So, you know, I assume the cops are about to give Perry Mason a hard time, make his life difficult. I assume his house will be foreclosed on. I assume he'll have like a in-person meeting with his wife where she'll be like, you can't keep doing all of this. 
I just foresee his life taking a sharp turn to complete shit. And we will see how he deals with it. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't really read the conversation that way. I, I got the sense that Perry was just happy to talk to his son about anything. And, and you know, he didn't, didn't, you know, wasn't offended that his son didn't like the truck. I mean, kids grow up. They move on from toy trucks to, to baseball gloves. I didn't think he was offended. I just think he was hurt. And then he was not just metaphorically hurt. He was physically beaten moments later. It's just like, and then, you know, the thing that happens at the end of this episode, it's just an, it's just the start of a long list of, hey, my life is shit. Late at night, E.B. anxiously searches through the records for his files on the clients that Barnes is threatening him over. He loses his temper and angrily criticizes Della, blaming her for him not being able to organize his records well enough. Della has had it up to here with this, reminds E.B. about all the work that she puts in propping up this law office, and she storms out. E.B. and Associates, I'm the only associate here, and E.B. yells, I'm the lawyer here, and then she yells back, then acts like one goddammit, which kerfuffles the fuck out of E.B. He, like, barely can breathe after. It's like, Jesus Christ, I just got served. And he sits down as Della storms out. Perry shares some pillow talk at Lupe back at his home. She tries once more to convince him to sell her the house and move on with his life and not continue this dangerous, miserable P.I. job. But Perry feels as though he needs to hold on to the farmhouse as a way to preserve the memory of his now-departed family. They also discuss Sister Alice's revelation, and Lupe says that sometimes dead is better. Lupe's point being, you can't outrun death, and Mason's point being, I care about legacy, or at least I care about legacy in the aspect of, like, it might be the only thing I have left, so I can't leave this shitty house. Keep your $7,000. At home... Della is visited by another one of the boarders, Myrna, the short-haired brunette from the scene with the traveling salesman. Della begins to tell her about all her problems that she's having with E.B. and this Dobson case. And then Della undresses, get into bed, and the two kiss. So the HBO version of Della is maybe in a lesbian relationship? The thing is, mm. the, 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 I don't know, They they seemed like like a like more friendly than super serious so this might be a little fling i didn't get the sense that you know they were in a domestic partnership or anything no but at the very least not that that would it, be legal in the 1930s anyway but <laughs> right at the very least they're implying that on the spectrum of sexuality della is not completely straight well, it, it now recontextualizes uh, uh, her being hit on all the time in the 1950s version. Uh, where she might just be thinking to herself, uh, I mean, you can keep trying, Paul, but I do not care. I, I, at the time it occurred, and when I was watching the scene, I was like, does this matter to me? Like, does this piece of information about Della make her a more dynamic character in this show. And I'm not sure it does. It I like the scene right beforehand where she was screaming at her boss, making a solid point. The scene where she stays with Emily, the scene where she stands up to two detectives. There's just so much heft in all of the scenes prior. This one where they're like, and by the way, she might be, she's a little gay. And I'm like, all right, well, right on. But well, I think I think it's good actually. And it's yeah. similar to the discussion that we had with Paul, and it's just about adding layers of characterization. In the 1950s version, basically when, when Paul and Della aren't in the room with Perry, they might as well not exist, right? They don't have any lives outside of when they're helping something with Perry that at least we can see. And, and, and you know, for that matter, Perry doesn't seem to have any kind of personal life outside the office either. And... 
I think, you know, it is good to just lend some characterization to like, oh yeah, these people have lives outside of the main plot like a real person might, you know? Yeah, but they could have done that exact same thing by showing that Della had a boyfriend and went to his house and stayed over the night or something like that that no one else knew about. That's not what they chose to do. What they chose to do was show her with someone whom the way they're speaking to each other just seems like a friend who she also makes out with on occasion. And possibly does more we don't know we didn't see the rest of the scene so i of course in that moment i was like okay that's cool but i just don't know like it was like the 10th to 20th most impactful della scene and it just felt like they were like okay well let's just slip in here and let everybody know that della isn't 100 percent straight like i just don't know how important they're asking the audience to I guess they're not asking the audience to to like make any large jumps here, but I felt I don't know. Like 5 minutes prior to this, she just took such a big swing that this happening 5 minutes later felt a little cheap to me. Like it it felt like a moment where HBO was just like, "Oh, and by the way, this like if if you're going to make this a huge part of her character, it's not a huge maybe that's the point." Where it doesn't have to be a huge part of anyone's character. It can just be a thing that's real in the background. So I guess I'm fine. I talked myself into it. Yeah, you just you did a total 180 yeah. <laughs> on that issue. All right. Interesting. I'm a dynamic character, James. <laughs> the next day, Perry goes to EB's office and finds a wreck inside and EB asleep on the couch. He's awoken by a phone call from the DA's office, which Perry initially answers, but E.B. tells him to hang up. E.B. then bemoans the indignities of old age, and he and Perry share a nice moment, recalling the days when they first met, when Perry's father was dealing with some kind of land title dispute. But thinking about these better times seems to really sadden E.B., and he looks forlornly out the window as Perry leaves to gather more evidence. Oh my god. This show is really good because like as you say that and they're talking about I forgot about the depth of that conversation about how they first met and you get to the end you're like of course of course this happens why like it, they were setting us up the dominoes were being set up and we just were had our eyes closed and couldn't see them he didn't drive home because Della threw his keys at him and was like drive yourself home but I don't think he can his feet swell at night and they hurt like a hemorrhoid. And he's like, you will know, Perry Mason, about how this feels when you do get older. And Perry Mason's like, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to get all the answers. He's like, you do that, son. And I wrote as a note, EB is so sad and old and he can't be helpful. And that's sad. <laughs> and and then I went back after it was like, oh, shit. Atlas prepares to address her followers outside of her home, and the church elders give her a prepared speech they want her to read. Alice begins unenthusiastically reading the remarks, but her followers can't hear her because she's behind a wall of security guards. And so she folds up the speech and addresses the crowd directly and speaks from the heart. She begins apologizing for her revelation the other day saying she didn't mean to offend anyone and it was just her own pride convincing her of something that isn't true when one of her true believers runs forward with a baby blanket for charlie and he says that he might want this once he comes back and this re-inspires alice who then proclaims emily dobson is innocent and charlie will be resurrected on easter sunday i a hundred percent assumed that that blanket had snakes in it <laughs> yeah right it's just more snakes she opens the prepared remarks and a snake jumps out <laughs> Alice saying this nearly causes a riot outside her home. Half of the parishioners are cheering in rapture, and the other half are chanting, Blasphemer! Blasphemer! And even some of the church elders join in with that one. Right, Elder Brown turns around. He takes this moment to turn on Sister Alice, and it seems as though the spigot, as he said, is going to be shut off. So money will no longer be funneling towards the parish and or Birdie and or Sister Alice. So sad times for them. 
But she's like, whatever, dude. God told me. And but although God told me, but for a moment there, she was like, I'll do what my mom wants and I'll apologize. But then one dude hands her a blanket and she completely turns face. Well, I think this is what she wanted to do. And she was basically looking for any excuse. Yeah, I know. But it. this excuse was just so minuscule. Peter and Perry return to the scene of the crime. And they come to the conclusion that the fourth man probably is not on the run and that he is probably still in the city which is why he's putting in so much effort to pin all of the blame on george meanwhile in the county jail eb very sadly makes the case to emily that perhaps pleading out and getting 20 years is preferable to facing the executioner eb in this moment is obviously thinking about being disbarred in a few days talking to a woman whom he cannot in his right mind, defend. Her eye is black. They're both crying. Right, and E.B. is clearly not convinced of anything that he's saying, and when he sees Emily's reaction to the thought of serving 20 years for a crime she didn't commit, he he does a 180 and reaffirms his conviction to defend her, and this scene was amazing. And Jonathan Lithgow's performance is amazing, and it's interesting to think about that this is a guy who is first and foremost a comedic actor, right? I would say most of his career was, yeah. And and probably one of his best-known roles is Lord Farquaad in Shrek, right? Yeah. He just brings it so hard into this scene and, and makes you believe it. And it just, he's doing such a good job in these past four episodes that it makes the ending hit that much harder. Right. It's Emmy-worthy. In every aspect of whatever whatever parameters Emmys have, they should hand one to John Lithgow for this scene alone. Because it has completely, like, two different aspects to it. One of which does not inform itself until the end. Because as I was watching it, I was like, oh my god. He is inspired. He turns around his entire position as to his confidence in himself, his confidence in Emily. But then the end happens and you're like, no, that's not what this is. This is a manic episode of a man who's losing his mind. Sad as fuck. Back at the crime scene, Peter and Paul discuss how and where the kidnappers picked up the cash the night of the drop-off. They think that it's unlikely that the kidnappers would come in and out the front door and they try to go out the back but it's actually a walled off dead end and that's when they spy a skyway connecting the building of the drop off to the adjoining elks club i don't know what the elks club is it's a social fraternity for adults okay so it's slightly more than shriners but slightly less than the freemasons i guess right it's so like you can rent out the elks club to have parties it's like the american legion or knights of columbus in that way and also they have meetings there and you pay them an amount of money and also i assume the executive producers of perry mason did not ask if one of their antagonists can be in the elks club i feel like elks club would have been like nah yeah sorry if i'm gonna be in a fraternal society it's got to be a secret society okay none of this Mm. you know none of this public open to everybody stuff all right i want to have to take a dark ritual and 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 be hazed by a bunch of weirdos right illuminati or nothing and not the illuminati that like everyone talks about the super secret one that nobody talks about that one actually my great grandfather was the master mason of the freemason lodge in taunton massachusetts Mm. um and he wanted my grandfather to follow in his footsteps my grandfather was like, yeah, sounds like a lot of work and kind of lame, so no. <laughs> right. That's hilarious. It's not for me, Dad. That's your life, not mine. Yeah. My great-grandfather was the Grand Dragon of the KKK. And... <laughs> <laughs> but we don't talk about that in the family that much anymore. No, yeah, no, it's <laughs> talked about at every, I mean, it's passed down from generation to generation. I'm now the Grand Dragon, so... <laughs> Uh, this has been a problematic episode. Yeah, the KKK <laughs> and the Illuminati are anti-Ryan now. This is the exact stance I want to take. The duo pretend to be considering Elk Club membership in order to gain access to the building. 
Inside, a charity drive is being conducted to send children with polio to summer camp. That's a good charity. Hmm. In the audience, Perry spies Detective Ennis. He confronts the detective, but Ennis plays it cool and denounces private investigators as wannabe cops. Perry walking up to Ennis while Ennis is watching his child on stage is a bold move. And on brand for the 1950s version of Perry Mason that would do brazen shit all the time that felt a little bit like stepping over the line, perhaps not legal, perhaps a little bit too confident in his ways that is giving too much away. But I'm glad that this version of Perry Mason did it because I was like, what are you doing? Why are you walking over there and letting Ennis know that you know this? And I assume if I asked Perry Mason that in real life, he'd be like, just cause, cause fuck him. Right. 1950s Perry Mason would do the exact same thing, but with like a cheerier disposition and more of like a wink and a nod that being directly confrontational. Then maybe just like lights the building on fire and blames the detective and the judge is like, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. At home, EB goes through his morning routine much like he did in the last episode, but this time he just seems much sadder. He then drags a chair into the kitchen, locks the doors behind him, turns on all of his gas stoves, and watches the hummingbirds outside his window as he waits to suffocate to death. He's in his best suit. He read the paper, and it has his quote about his favorite restaurant on the front. He moves the chair to the middle of the kitchen, and I thought to myself, oh my Christ, is this motherfucker about to hang himself? And then he turns on all the stove settings, and I was like, Della's going to walk in. Della, who said to <laughs> her lady that she was making out with, I'm not going to go into work today. He needs to know a day without me and what that feels like. I was like, no, she's going to change her mind, and she's going to do ex machina. This is the shit. day after that, so possible she's going to come over, right? To right. Pick him up. He doesn't know that he might think that she totally quit and that no one is going to come for him this this is a cliffhanger perhaps two episodes ago you see Della knock on the door many times and eb not open it and be kind of like in a trance watching the bird feeder but then what did she do then she barged right in right which is what she's definitely gonna do next episode right and find eb sitting <laughs> so there. will she get there in time or not basically Based on the size of that room, she has a couple minutes to get there. And based on interviews with Collider and things I've read in the past few hours, she will not get there in time. Oh, spoilers. Spoilers. He only signed a contract for four episodes. In fact, he only said yes to this part because he said that him, EB that is, killing himself four episodes in made the character that much more interesting because he's like... If you look back in retrospect, there are so many things that you're like, of course that this happened. And the ending of him killing himself makes him that much more interesting as a character. And personally, for me, makes him that much more tragic and sad to watch. So what happens with Emily's defense now? Because Perry and Della don't have the credentials to practice law. No. Someone has to be the new lawyer, right? We've only met one other lawyer... And it was Lyle was his name, maybe? The guy that EB was trying to get money from last episode. Oh, and then also Perry's shitty lawyer from from his civil suit. Right, yes. The man whom Perry was openly in court chastising for doing a bad job. So those are the only two lawyers that we've met other than EB and Maynard Barnes. Will one of them be the new lawyer or will they find a new person? Because you and I had joked about Perry and Della... Weekend at Bernieing the the court case, you know, with with a with a dopey, not altogether EB. That possibility is now out. But I mean, if they just need a suit to sit in a chair, yeah, it's more realistic now because they truly would have to weekend at Bernie's with a dead version of EB. It's just it's so it's more like on brand for the movie, but it's sadder because it's real. So, right, they just need a stuffed suit to sit there and represent Emily while they do all the work, and so Perry could get his lame defense attorney to sit there, and then I don't know how the legal system works. Are you allowed to have a non-lawyer co-counsel sit on the bench? 
I have no idea. I mean, I assume you can maybe, and by assume, I mean, I have no idea. You could maybe be your own co-counsel, or you can say that I don't want a lawyer and I'm going to represent myself, right? Right, but can I say, like, I don't want a lawyer, I'm going to have Ryan represent me. Can I do that? Like, I I don't know. I guess we are going to learn a little bit about the legal system in next episode then. So, when this episode started, did you have any inkling that EB was going to be dead by the end of it? No, but I should have. Because this is something that I I became cognizant of in the early seasons of The Walking Dead, and then I never really, uh, I, I, I never really forgot it. That, like, on a cable TV show drama, they give a character suddenly a bunch of characterization, and then they die. So that you feel something. <laughs> I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's an episode in season one of The West Wing where Jed Bartlett, the president, has this doctor that he loves very, very much and he confides in all the time. And we don't meet him until one episode where we get 10 straight minutes of characterization. And you should think to yourself, oh, boy, this guy's going to die. But you don't. And then he's dead. And then you're like, shit. Well, I felt something. And now... He's gone, and how dare you pull at my heartstrings like that. But yeah, no, I didn't think EB was low enough to kill himself until he was doing it. He came back momentarily when he was sitting across from Emily, but then you think back and you're like, no, that's just kind of a manic episode. That's even sadder. And there are not many performances other than John Lithgow's Elias Bertrand Jonathan, also known as EB, that are this sad in television history that I think. I I was trying to put together my top three most tragic characters in TV history. Now, obviously, this is only TV that I've watched. I've not watched all of TV. In fact, I bet it's a very small percentage. But, James, I also asked you to think about the most tragic characters you've seen in TV history. Who are some of yours, and does EB fit into the top of any of your list? Well, it's very hard to talk about without spoiling various shows. Sure. Right? But I would say anybody who's seen Six Feet Under, the death of the very major character in the final season that kind of comes out of nowhere, well, does and does not come out of nowhere, very shocking and very effective. And then, of course, I think everyone would say probably the Red Wedding, except, except that just before the Red Wedding aired on TV... My friend Sean spoiled the entire thing for me. No, that's yeah. awful. <laughs> I saw the Red Wedding not knowing anything. That must have been crazy. It was insane. I Honestly, I can't believe I got there. It was just that I had been anti-Game of Thrones for four to five seasons. I knew nothing about it. I had not read any of the books. I just started doing that now. Oh, so you watched it way after it aired. I watched seasons one through four in a week's time, and it was right after our pal Mark came home, the one who wants to climb a lady like an Amazon, after he came home from the Marines, and we just sat down and we're like, let's give it a try, and I knew nothing. So going into the Red Wedding, I had no inkling that anything was going to happen until she took Roos Bolton's sleeve and pulled it back and there was chain mail. I was completely on the page of this is a nice wedding everything is fine so i agree i will also add to that some other characters that i believe are tv history tragic jack pearson in this is us the father which is not i don't think a a spoiler he his demise is very early in the series in fact it's kind of what the entire series is based off of so i don't think i'm ruining that for anybody but He goes back in the house that's burning down to get the dog. It goes poorly. And then we get flashbacks of him, you know, the entire rest of the series. So it's always tragic to see him on screen. From a comedy, I think Andy from The Office is oddly tragic. His last line, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them, is, I think, one of the more tragic lines that have ever been said in a TV comedy. Wait a second, wait a second. I haven't seen The Office. Andy dies in The the Office? No, no, he lives. I didn't say he dies. He just says that before (laughs) the end of the... No, he does not die. I don't think... No, none of the main characters die in The Office. Ed Truck dies, but he's not main character. 
Everything's okay. fine, James. <laughs> Andy is alive. Uh, well, the Scranton Strangler also dies off right. screen. Right, that's true. No, Andy is alive. He's just sad. <laughs> okay. I'm a huge West Wing fan, so Mrs. Landingham is, I think, the most tragic character in that story. And she tells this harrowing tale of her two sons, twins, who died in Vietnam that comes out of nowhere in a Christmas episode and just wrecked me. And then, uh, spoilers, she dies. So it's very, very sad. But in this top three, I think EB has to be thrown in there. He was just had four episodes, but he hit so hard. Yeah, and I mean, I could go on, but it would just be a bunch of anime nonsense. I, I mean, love recently, anime nonsense from James. When 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 Philip dies, is very sad, and that song "Uptown." Oh, in Hamilton, uh, yeah, "Quiet Uptown" is a very sad song. Oh my god, I was so embarrassed. I listened back to the Hamilton episode, and I called him Philip Schuyler. Just kill me. That was his grandfather's name. It sure was, but it's not his. Listen, I was three glasses of wine deep. I need to be forgiven for some words I said. Only those words. Everything else was fine. Well, everyone, if you're just listening, it means a lot to us. If you want to go the extra mile, you can follow us on Twitter. He's at WestworldRyan. I'm at JamesWatchesMen. Hilarious. You can also subscribe to us on any relevant podcast app. Maybe the one you're listening to it right now. I listen to us on Overcast. It's interesting. Like, if you just keep podcasting long enough without manually doing it, podcast services will just throw your show on there. Oh, yeah, we're on a bunch of shit that we have not purposely tried to be on. And if you want to support the show financially for a dollar or more a month, you get access to our Patreon benefits, which include bonus content. We got quite a catalog going already. Mm -hmm. We have 103 or four episodes on our main channel and now like almost 10 bonus thingies. So a dollar? (laughs) What a good deal. And you'll also get access to our patrons-only Discord, where you can chat live with Ryan and I, and we will shout you out at the end of each show. Like I'm about to do right now. Branko, Hardboiled Greg, Nicole, Day 11 Podcast, James Watch My Dong. Faster! Oh, that, okay. Cliff Wilding, hello, underscore, yo, James Christopher, atheism, unstoppable, <laughs> Chris Wood, Brent Ginn, Day 11, Westworld again, Carol Andreas, Lee, Craig, Bakaman, John Jersman, Major Woody, thank you so much for the money. And also, I will take Faster as the joke of James Watch My Dong, but next week I expect a James Watch My Dong joke. That was very fast. (laughs) I tried my fucking best, dude. And I listen to our podcast. Yes, I listen to myself. Shut the fuck up. I don't know who I'm yelling at. On 1.5 speed, and it is fucking... When I do those names, it is Rap God at 1.5 speed. And then one thing you can really do to support the show, just spread it around by word of mouth. That's how we've been getting around, and that's how we will go around. So please, if you've got people who are interested in HBO shows, let them know about us. Yeah, we are, again, like 103 episodes in, and not once have we had a sponsor. So so tell people better shows so that our hobby can, can become our job. That'd be sick. And then join us here next week for Perry Mason, Episode 5. The Case of the Reborn Newborn. Wow. Again, that's not the actual title. The title is Chapter 5, which is Eye Roll City, that they're not giving alliterative titles like the original show did. But James has done an amazing job, and I applaud you. Right, and we're petitioning. We've got a change.org petition going to change the names of the episodes to the ones that I came up with so far. Only Ryan and I and Major Woody have signed it. That's Uh, true. (laughs) You know, if if you could pass that petition around too, we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. James Watch My Dong is one hundred percent also signed it. Okay. We got some rider dies. We have no sponsors, but we have like fourteen rider dies, and that's all you need. Who needs money, you know, when you have rider dies? I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And this is the HBO Boys Podcast. Yeah, you're getting getting real Baroque with the (laughs) sign off if it ain't baroque fix it over and over again until it's much worse hbo please